Allison gave me permission last week by putting her family up there, so I get to put my grand twins up there. That's um, my husband there, um, the oldest person in the picture. That was the last, that was the last summer um, when we had his 75th birthday party. And Rachel is my granddaughter. Then there's me. Then Heather, my daughter, and Alexis, my other twin. And um, Rob, that's Heather's husband. And the twins are freshmen in college this year. Uh, little miracle girls, but they are uh, in college. One is, uh, Rachel is at Belmont, and Alexis is at Wheaton. So that's my family. Um, so I've had an occasion as I wrote the study for this week and then prepared the lecture for this week. I've had occasion to think a lot about slavery. Um, did you know that there are over 50 million people in bondage today, even as I'm standing here across the globe? There are powerful men and powerful governments that are cruelly um, enslaving and abusing the poor and the weak. And when we think about it, I was going to put some pictures up there, and I said, no, I'm not going to leave that, those images in people's mind. We'll just, just, it's horrible. And your heart is broken when you look at these things and when you know that it's reality um, in the face of this kind of tragedy. <clears throat> so I also thought, after I was looking at some of that, I thought, <clears throat> you know, as, as dreadful, as horrible, as painful and heart-rending as those situations are, slavery is not something that's just over there, far off, and impersonal. <clears throat> All day, every day, every one of us in this room faces powerful forces that attempt to enslave us. Our culture tries to convince us to believe the worldly philosophies. Our, the devil is hard at work enticing us to stop following the Lord, to get off on a sidetrack. And then there's our own fleshly desires that wage war against the Spirit. Obviously, there's nothing we can do. We are helpless before these strong opposition um, if we're left to ourselves. I don't know which one is the worst in your mind, but I'll tell you what attacks me. For as far back as I can remember, I've been plagued by fear. When I was in the second grade, just to show you, this is one of my earliest horrible memories. Um, when I was in the second grade, the polio vaccine was invented. And I knew someone who had polio, and I knew I should get the vaccine because I sure didn't want to end up with that kind of um, thing taking over my life. But I was afraid to get the shot because I knew it was going to hurt. And so as my second grade class trooped down the hall to the nurse's station to get our polio vaccines, because the government, you know, decreed that everybody should uh, get a free shot at school. So as my second grade class trooped down the hall, I slowly drifted to the back of the line. <laughs> So I could put it off as long as possible. I did not want to get that vaccine. 
Well, it took a longer process than expected, and our lunch period started for my class. So the teacher came to me, and she, since I was last in line, and she said, uh, do you know how to get to the lunchroom? Because we're going to go ahead and go to lunch. And so since I was afraid to tell her that I'm directionally challenged, <laughs> I said, yes, I know how to get there. So after I got my shot, I got out in the hallway, and I had no clue which way to turn. I still get lost going to the bedroom. It's just not my gift. And so um, as I was going through the hallways, you know, I ended up in the high school building. This was back before they divided you, know, you up to put the high school in a separate building. And so I was really afraid then because I certainly didn't know my way around the high school building. And finally, one of the teachers saw me go by as I was crying. She, and she came out of the room. And she said, what are you doing out here? You're not supposed to even be in this building. Where are you supposed to be? And so I told her, you know, and she took me to the principal. Then I was even more afraid. <laughs> and the principal took me to the lunchroom. And by this time, lunch is almost over. I'm not getting any lunch. So my teacher is furious at me because I've missed lunch. Lisa, let me say, it was not the best day of my life. <laughs> Fear ruled in every, at every turn. You might expect this from a seven-year-old. But, sad to say, fear has followed me into adulthood. I can be afraid of things you never thought of. I'm afraid of meeting new people, afraid of rejection, afraid of loneliness. I'm terrified of public speaking. The Lord has met me in that in, to some degree. Um, I was afraid to go to seminary at the age of 62. I knew I couldn't keep up with those 25-year-old kids. I'm still afraid of getting lost. And I don't like not knowing the answers to questions. I want to know everything. I'm afraid that you'll think I'm stupid. And so fear is something that I still battle. Giving in to fear only ingrains the habit worse until eventually we are trapped and immobilized. And I wasn't able to verbalize this at age seven, but the thought was in my heart still, as Paul says in Romans 7, who will set me free from the body of this death? And we know that only God can conquer the things that paralyze us, the habits, the people, um, the situations that enslave us. So this morning, as we look at the familiar Passover narrative, let's watch the King of Kings arise to deliver his people from the bond their bondage with his powerful hand. And let's find our place in this story. So a bit of review before we get started. At the beginning of the semester, we were given a little brown card like this. If you didn't get one, there's a few left on the table over there. <clears throat> Christy um, made this to help us keep our focus in the greatest story, to keep the, the storyline in focus. And the storyline, as it's listed on this card, reads this way. God demonstrated never-ending grace and faithfulness despite man's disobedience and ultimately reconciles all creation to himself through Jesus Christ. Also is a story arc. In other words, a cycle 
that repeats itself over and over through the scripture. And as we read through our lessons for the, this year, we're, we're, this arc should help us to see how um, the storyline runs in a cycle. It, our relationship, we began with a perfect relationship with God. Then disobedience raised its ugly head. And next, as a result of the disobedience, um, consequences and suffering came into the world. And then God showed mercy. And he made a way for fellowship with him to be restored. So let's follow the story arc as we look back and find our place where we are in the story in our lesson today. Relationship. God created the heavens and the earth, including creating man in his own image. And his intent was to bless Adam and Eve. Perfect environment, perfect marriage, and perfect relationship and perfect fellowship with himself. But disobedience raised its ugly head. Adam and Eve chose to disobey. And when they did, consequences resulted. Sin entered the world. And with it, guilt and fear and shame came into their once perfect relationships. And then in Genesis 4 through 11, we follow the story further as we follow the narratives of Cain and Abel and Noah and the Tower of Babel with ever intensifying corruption. It just escalates, doesn't it? Worse and worse, dysfunction, separate and separation and chaos enter God's once perfect world. But when we come to Genesis 12, as we studied last week, we find hope because God shows mercy. He renews his plan to bless. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees in, in the idolatry that he was uh, involved in. And he gives him amazing covenant promises. Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness and fellowship is restored back with God. And God then renews the covenant with Abram's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob passes the blessing on to his sons. When a severe famine comes into the land, Joseph is in power in Egypt. And he arranges for the preservation of his whole family. With Pharaoh's approval and at Pharaoh's invitation, his, Joseph's family migrates to Egypt. And Joseph affirms that this their going to Egypt was God's plan to preserve many people alive. And then the cycle begins again as disobedience comes in. The people are very content to be in the land of Goshen. It's fertile and they're fruitful and multiplying and everything's going great. And complacency sets in. Complacency is a sin. And the consequences for that for three generations, God is silent. And yet, even in his silence, his mercy comes to the surface. He's fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham for a multitude of descendants. And he is setting in motion a plan to set his people free. The genealogy in the first few verses of Exodus shows us <clears throat> that the greatest story will unfold around this one particular family, the sons of Israel. The covenant with Abraham will drive the story for the rest of the scripture. 
And we need to look for that uh, as it unfolds as we study through the rest of the year. So let's explore the story of today's lesson. As we do, we'll see how the sons of Israel came to be in the cruel bondage that they find themselves in and how God intervenes to bring deliverance. And we'll also see how Israel responds. So act one of the Exodus drama opens with a new king arising in Egypt. As we've mentioned already, the sons of Israel have multiplied and they fill the land and they've, they've become strong. Joseph has died as well as the generation who knew Joseph and Pharaoh has died, that, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph. Now it gets a little confusing um, here because in our lesson today, we, we deal with three different Pharaohs. And it just says in the Bible, Pharaoh, and you kind of think maybe it's the same person. But we see right here that Pharaoh number one, who knew Joseph, is dead. Pharaoh number two comes to power. And he doesn't know Joseph. And when he sees how strong and powerful and numerous the Israelites are, he is gripped with anxiety. And his imagination goes wild. What if they join themselves with my enemies in war? That's going to be trouble. Who knows? They might even escape. So he is on edge because God is blessing his people. So he begins to take action. This new Pharaoh, intent on eliminating God's people, institutes a plan that will remedy, he thinks, will remedy the situation. First, he says, let them work, hoping it will eliminate them, and if not, at least it will demoralize them. But we know that that doesn't happen. This bondage that they find themselves in is actually part of the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15, 400 years prior. God has promised Abraham that his people are going to be in bondage. So God is in the process of carrying out his plan. And the people multiply even more rather than being eliminated. So when that doesn't work, of course, we know the story here that Moses, uh, Moses Pharaoh orders all the midwives to kill the Hebrew babies as they're being born. But the midwives refuse to obey. So then Pharaoh has to come up with another plan. He orders everyone to kill, uh, to throw all the Hebrew babies into the Nile River to drown them. Because you see, with Pharaoh on the throne, death reigns. But none of his plotting is ultimately successful <clears throat> because he forgets to take God into account. So what is the word from the Lord to us in this in this? Um, these scriptures in, in Exodus 1. We're to remember two things. Giving in to sin leads to death. And we need to remember that our powerful God is ready to arise and come to our aid. So Acts 2 in the Exodus drama begins 
as the king of kings arises. And this is where the storyline pivots. God steps directly down into human history <clears throat> to continue to fill the Abrahamic covenant. Pharaoh may be intent on eliminating God's people, but God is intent on preserving his people. And in Exodus 2, at the end of the chapter, verses 24 and 25, we come to four action verbs that describe what happens when God arises. First, we read that God hears. God is always attentive to us, even when it seems to us as though he is silent. He's aware of their suffering. He hears their cry, and he's moved by it. Then it says God remembers his covenant. Remember is an important word in Scripture, and it's crucial that we understand exactly what it means. It does not mean that God forgot and suddenly said, oh my goodness, I didn't think about that. And now I remember I'm supposed to be, you know, it's not that way, of course. That's ridiculous to even think about it. The word remember means to, to, to think about something with the intention to act. You know, when it says he doesn't remember our sins anymore, it means when he thinks about our sin, he in, doesn't intend to act toward us on the basis of that. Um, doesn't mean he forgot we did it. There's nail prints, right? <laughs> but God remembers his covenant. And he positions himself to act. Then we read that God sees. He makes them the object of his special attention and special regard. And the last verb that we come to is God takes notice. This word is a relational word. It's an I will be their God and they will be my people word. It means that he knows them intimately in a very close and intimate relationship. So as God assumes his position, ready to act, ready to intervene, he sets in motion a sequence, a very intentional sequence of actions that he's going to use to accomplish his purposes. First, he's going to prepare Moses, then he's going to prepare Pharaoh, and then he's going to present the pass, uh, provide the Passover. So let's look first at the preparation of Moses. After Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses from the Nile River and adopts him, he spends 40 years in the palace. Edu he's being educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. And he becomes mighty in words and deeds. That struck me really funny because Moses offers up the excuse later that he's, he doesn't know how to speak. But in Acts Chapter 7 in the New Testament tells us that he is, became mighty in words and deeds. He also, in the palace, he learns the ways of the pharaohs. And he learns Egyptian culture. This is going to come in very handy in just a few more years. Secondly, after he, the rashness of killing an Egyptian, he has to flee to Midian, where he stays for another 40 years. There, he learns humility. He learns, he hones his shepherding skills. And he becomes familiar with life in the wilderness and what it takes to survive there. And near the end of his time in Midian, Pharaoh number two dies. 
and Pharaoh number three comes to power. And he continues the oppression that Pharaoh number two began. And the final step in Moses' preparation is when God calls him from the burning bush and tells him that he will be the instrument of God's freeing the people. In contrast to Pharaoh's word, let them work, God's word to his people is let them worship. Even with such an amazing and astonishing and terrifying experience Moses had with God in that burning bush, he's still full of excuses. But God, in his mercy, counters every excuse that he offers up, assuring Moses of his presence with him. And he reveals himself to him as I am that I am. That means I am present with you and I will be to you all you need in every situation in which you find yourself. He's ready now. God's ready now. And he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. God has prepared his servant. And now he's going to offer Pharaoh, Pharaoh number three, (laughs) ten chances to embrace the one true God. As Moses delivers God's command to Pharaoh to let my people go and worship, Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't even know this God. That begins a series of plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. As we read through this section, you'll notice a repetition of a phrase that Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. Occasionally it says that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. The mere repetition of that phrase helps us to understand that the plagues are not don't serve just the function of chastisement. Instead, you know, God God is not showing his revenge on Pharaoh. We read in scripture that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead of being revenge or punishment, the plagues are instead a merciful invitation to Pharaoh and his people to know the Lord. That is, to acknowledge him and submit to him and believe him as the one true God. Only when he refuses the invitation does the plague become a judgment on him. God's heart in discipline, and we see this all through scripture, God's heart in discipline is always redemptive. It's always, he always sends the chastisement or the punishment so that the sinner might repent and believe that he is who he says he is. For nine months, God sends an increasingly um, increasingly severe plagues. But Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and he will not humble himself. Now, God has told Moses that this is going to happen. But not until the sixth plague do we read that Pharaoh, uh, do we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Before that, it's always 
Pharaoh hardened his heart. But not until the sixth plague do we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh thinks that he's powerful enough <clears throat> and wise enough to set his own course. Only to experience, in the end, the full power of God's wrath against those who will not submit. He misses the chance of a lifetime in the interest of maintaining his own sovereignty. It's easy to be judgmental of Pharaoh until we remember that there have been occasions, I'm sure for you as well as for me, where I've insisted on my uh, setting the course of my own life and, and running my own life, even in the face of God's continual and repeated demonstrations of his wisdom and his love and his mercy toward me. So now we're ready to talk about the Passover with God's servant in place, Moses, and with Pharaoh continuing to refuse to yield his place, God gives instructions on the specific way that he is going to bring the people out of Egypt and into the place that he has promised to bring them. The provision of the Passover is one of the most significant turning points in Israel's history. It's the place where the sons of Israel become one nation as opposed to separate individual self-seeking tribes. The term congregation appears in scripture for the first time in Exodus 12:3. And the most the instructions that Moses gives them they are to carry out corporately you know, individually and corporately. But they're all to do the same thing at the same time for the same purpose. They are becoming one nation. In order to escape the um, judgment that God's about to send, the key thing that Moses emphasizes to them is the shedding of blood, the slaying of a perfect unblemished lamb and the application of the blood on the door and lentil of each house. When God sees the blood, he will pass over them. This is another Passover, is another verb that's important for us to understand. It means to stand guard over, as a, to protect from disaster or destruction. We have the picture of God as a protective covering, actively um, involved in protecting his people. And in addition, he also promises them at this time, not only will he pass over them, but he will go with them to lead them to the land that he has promised to give them. With God on the throne, life reigns, and nothing can thwart his plans to save. So what is the message to us in this section of Exodus? When we are oppressed, what are we to do? We're to remember that God is aware of our suffering. And he's putting into place everything necessary to set us free. And in the meantime, he is standing guard over us as a protective covering.
So Act 3 begins. All that's required for the deliverance that God has set in place to become a personal reality is for the people to arise and obey. They know what they need to do. Now all they need to do is do it. Um, Moses calls the elders and gives them the instructions, including the crucial command to put the blood over um, the blood of the lamb on the doors. And then we read in Exodus 12, 27, and the people bowed low and worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They believe God and apply the blood. At midnight, the destroying angel goes through throughout the land, killing all the firstborn Egyptian babies, or sons, not babies, but sons. <clears throat> but when the Lord sees the blood on the door of the Israelites, he stands guard as a protective covering over the homes of the Israelites. And they're rescued from death. And so, in the middle of the night, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. And Pharaoh says, rise up, get out, and go worship your God. Very ironic, isn't it? <laughs> to hear him say that. Um, as the Israelites follow the pillar of cloud and fire, can you imagine how ecstatic they must have been knowing that at last they are free from their bondage? But then God gives them a command to turn back and camp by the Red Sea. Now that's strange. Why would they want to go back? Wouldn't you want to be putting more distance between you and the enemy? But that's what God told them to do, and so they did it. it was a, but it set an unsettling atmosphere where the people's panic is going to show up in just a few minutes. While all this is happening, meanwhile, Pharaoh realizes what he's done, and he gathers his army and hotly pursues them. Now, we read right over that, but you know, it took a little while for this to happen. First of all, he had to learn that they'd actually all left, then he had to gather his army, which was a lot of people and a lot of horses and a lot of chariots, get them all equipped and set up to go. Probably two or three days must have passed between, before he actually uh, caught up with them. But it's night again when he, when he arrives at their camp. And the Israelites are terrified and they cry out to God, which seems like a good thing. But then the very next words out of their mouth is a bitter complaint to Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us? To die? You know, they've already forgotten God's covenant. I'm bringing you out of Egypt in order to bring you into the land that I've promised, that I've promised you. Not one word about I'm going to bringing you out of Egypt to kill you. And they've forgotten what God has said to them. They've also forgotten God's presence with them in the cloud. And that cloud has, even at that moment, moved between them and the Egyptians to act as a protective barrier. 
The problem is that they are interpreting their difficulties. Excuse me. Got that backwards. The problem is they are interpreting God in the face of their difficulties. Rather than interpreting their difficulties in the face, in the presence of God. Makes all the difference in the world when we do that, doesn't it? So Moses steps in with encouraging words. Do not fear. Stand by. See the salvation the Lord's going to accomplish. Keep silent and go forward. The Lord parts the Red Sea and they go through on dry land and they watch the Egyptians drown as the Lord releases the waters back over them. And when they see the great power that the Lord has used to rescue them in Exodus 14, 31, it says they arise from their unbelief and instead they fear the Lord and believe in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. And so we come to chapter 15 where the cry of agony that they had just expressed turns into song. They begin to praise the Lord and to celebrate and affirm his faithfulness and his, his sovereignty. Their mourning turns into dancing as they sing. The first half of the psalm, there in, in verses 1 through 18, I think it is, um, the first half of the, of the psalm looks backward and celebrating God's mighty deliverance. The last half of the psalm looks forward to David. And ultimately on to the Messiah who's to come, Jesus Christ. So what are we to learn in this section of our lesson this week? We're to remember, arise and obey even if the command seems strange. And sometimes God can tell us to do things that don't make sense. Do not fear. Don't let fear get a grip on you. But watch him work. Arise and go forward. We're called on a journey. We're to to be constantly moving forward with the Lord. And then when he acts, praise him with abandon. So how does this week's scripture give us a glimpse into what's to come in the greatest story? I think all of us in this room know that Passover and Exodus has given us a powerful picture and foreshadowing of the salvation that God is going to accomplish through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Pharaoh stands as a picture of Satan who opposes God and all who love God. And the New Testament tells us that he rules the kingdom of darkness and takes us captive to do his will. He's a murderer from the beginning. He kills, steals, and destroys He's a liar and the father of lies. He's slanderer. He slanders God and God's people. And he's a hard taskmaster. Let them work. When he is on the throne, death reigns. But God is not going to leave his people in such a wretched condition, is he? God hears their groaning and he invades their situation to deliver them. The Passover ritual points to Christ, our Passover. The New Testament identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who will deliver his people 
from the domain of darkness and translate them into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. He's the spotless sacrifice marked out beforehand for death. He's the divinely appointed substitute. The laying down of his life results in newness of life for us. He buys us back out of the slave market, never to be sold again. He cleanses us and restores us. Remember, his word to us is let them worship. When he is on the throne, life reigns. So how do we find our place in this story? The key word, one of the key words in Exodus is the word serve. It occurs over 100 times in the book. 67 of those are in the first 12 chapters. The question comes to Israel over and over and over again. Will they serve a king who is life-threatening and oppressive? Or will they serve the one true God who is life-giving and liberating? It's the same question all of us have to answer. Every day, the powerful forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us to serve the wrong master. Which king will I serve? Our triune God, the king of kings, has arisen to reestablish the fellowship with him that our sin has broken. And he invites us to arise and draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Not only in an initial act of faith, but all day, every day, we need him every hour. I need him as much today as the day I first believed the gospel. All day. I don't know what struggles and um, disappointments or bondage you might be dealing with. But there is one who longs to be your protective covering and set you free. If the cry of your heart today is, who will set me free? Will you join me in believing him and committing yourself to love and serve him only? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the pictures that you give us in your word um, that point to Jesus. And we are in awe of a God who would um, make the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you for Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to your right hand. Lord, I was reminded as I went through this uh, lesson today of um, the song by Phil Wickham, and I'll close with that. Some words from that song. Hallelujah. Praise the one who sets me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Lord, would you work in our hearts today that we might sing that song um, with, uh, with vigor and with uh, a heart that is ready to worship you and to acknowledge that you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you can do. And we thank you in Jesus' name.